Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Hello folks, Dr. Tim Jordan here with another episode of of raising daughters, and if you're the kind of parent who wants to remain an influence in your daughter's life now and through the teen years and forever, then you've come to the right place. Today, I'm going to talk about a different kind of topic. I'm actually going to talk a little bit about death and your mortality. If you're wondering why I would I would pick such a topic, let me tell you, there's a couple of things that triggered my thoughts today. One of them was I read an article in a, a site called The Daily Stoic, dailystoic.com, which I, I would encourage all of you to get and get on the newsletter because every month uh, this author comes out with some really nice articles. But he talked in this article this week about a concept called memento mori, M-E-M-E-N-T-O-M-O-R-I, memento mori, which is the ancient practice of reflection on mortality. That goes way back to the old Stoics, people like Socrates and Plato. There's a nice quote by Seneca at that time who said, Let us prepare our minds as if we'd come to the very end of life. Let us postpone nothing. Let us balance life's books each day. And the one who puts the finishing touches on their life each day is never short of time. Great quote, right? It reminds me of a story of a man who one morning woke up and he found his name and a story about his life in the obituary of the newspaper. Somebody thought he had passed away. So he was really curious to see what they had to say about him, what they were writing about him. He had spent decades being very successful in business. He had hundreds of patents, uh, but the portrait that they painted of him was less than favorable. One of the things he had done in one of his businesses was he was he had developed explosives and cannons, and he was the inventor of dynamite. And over the years, he had lost several employees and even his brother to explosions that had occurred at some of his factories. Because of this, and because some of his inventions had been used to kill people in wars, the article labeled him as the Merchant of Death. Uh, this man was deeply moved by what he had read, and of course he did not want his legacy to be being the Merchant of Death. So from that day forward, he used that as being an epiphany. He placed all of his, his wealth in a trust to be administered annually after his death to individuals who were creating their own legacies through achievements and advancements in science and culture. The man's name, Alfred Nobel. The legacy he left behind is the Nobel Prize. Never too late to switch gears. It's never too late to reflect on what you want your life to be about and to make some shifts, to make some changes. The first time I thought about my mortality and its an influence on my life was about 30 years ago when I read the book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by Stephen Covey. I love that book. It was one of the first personal growthy kinds of books I read where I used the exercise, I did the exercises in the back of each chapter. And a couple of those exercises were really important to me. They were very valuable. 
One of them was he had you write out your own eulogy. So uh, once you pass away, what do you want people to be saying about you? What's important to you? What do you value the most? So that was a very important exercise. I actually wrote my, my uh, obituary, I'm sorry, my eulogy at that point. And I realized that one of the things, or some of the things that I wanted people to t- say about me after I'd passed away was that I was a good husband, that I was a good father, that I was a good role model, and also that my life had been of service. There are some uh, weeks of camp where I'll have our high school campers do that exercise to write out their own eulogy, to kind of give them a sense of direction on what's important to me. How do I want to be remembered? Another exercise from the seven habits of highly effective people that I found useful was to write out your own personal mission statement, which I did. And I I spent some time on that. There's a whole process you can go through and there's suggestions in the book about how to do it. But I, I started to focus after that on being of service. That became a really important concept in my life. I wanted to devote my life to working with kids and and being a good role model, a good father figure for a lot of the kids I meet in my counseling practice, in my retreats, my camps. I also wanted to have the courage to take risks and to be fully in charge of my my journey, my life, my work. Those are some of the things that became important to me as part of my mission statement. I used the eulogy, I used my mission statement, I used those to begin with the end in mind. I use that as my end in mind to guide all of my decisions. One of the coolest things that happened after I did my mission statement was I went to a talk by Stephen Covey in St. Louis. And at the end of his talk, uh, which was great, by the way, I went up and had him sign my mission statement, which I still have to this day. Very cool. One of the reasons why I stopped doing general pediatrics about 30 years ago was because of those exercises. I changed to my subspecialty, developmental and behavioral pediatrics, because I wanted to be in charge of my schedule. I wanted to have more time at home with, with my wife, with my kids. Uh, growing up, my dad uh, worked long hours. He left the house at about 6.30, quarter to 7, and didn't get home Monday through Friday until about 10.30 at night. And he worked on Saturdays until about 6.30. He was trying to raise eight kids. And... And so he, you know, he he did his best. He was he was a good dad when he was home, but he just wasn't home much. And I told myself, I remember telling myself as a kid, that someday when I have kids, I'm going to be there for them. And so that was that became part of my mission statement and part of what I did with my life. I stopped seeing boys in my counseling practice. I stopped having boys in my weekend retreats and summer camps about a dozen or so years ago. And the reason was because I I realized I was getting burned out on seeing boys. I found myself complaining a lot about how uh, they weren't fun and they were hard and and it just wasn't the same. And I, I looked back and like two thirds or three fourths of my practice had been boys in my counseling practice. And I caught myself kind of complaining and whining and blaming. And I stopped myself short and said, wait a minute, now who's in charge of your schedule? That's me. I'm in charge. I made all these shifts, you know, 30 years ago because I wanted to be in charge of my schedule. And so... That's when I made my decision to just focus my practice on girls. That's also the time when I started to only see, have girls coming to my retreats and camps. And it's one of the best decisions I ever made. It's not like I don't like boys. I have two sons. I have a grandson. I love them dearly. I love hanging out with them. But it was just my work, my focus. I wanted it to be on girls. I'm really glad I did that. So that was one of my triggers a long time ago was was the fact that I read that book and I started doing some personal growth. 
But the and I also saw that article obviously in in the in the Daily Stoic. But the other trigger that started getting me thinking about my mortality was that almost two years ago, in July, actually July fifteenth of the year two thousand nineteen, I had open heart surgery, and it was like a sudden thing. I had no symptoms. I had this urge to do a screening cardiac test. Uh, I don't even know why. I just had this urge. Uh, I guess it was because I'm doing hot yoga all the time. I'm going to camp. It's it's 100 degrees outside. I'm, so I, I, my life is pretty physical. I do a lot of stuff like that. So I thought, oh, I, sh- I should probably check my, my heart. I was in my in my early 60s. And I did this screening test, and I and I bombed it. Your score was supposed to be like you know less than 30, and mine was 715. And so I had to go see a cardiologist right away. And and then he had me do these other tests. This is in the middle of our camp season. I'd already done two camps. I'd been to St. Lucia with my wife running a, a father-daughter retreat with some dads and their high school girls. I'd been going up and down the slip and slide at camp. I, you know, all this had happened. And then what I found with all the tests, the, the CT scan and all that, was that I had four things wrong with my heart that I had no, no um, awareness of. No symptoms. Never had a symptom. And about three days after I got all those tests back, I was on the operating room table for six and a half hours having open heart surgery, having four repairs. And I missed the third week of camp that summer, which was was the biggest bummer. I had never missed a week of camp in 29 years, now 30 years. Um, So that experience of having open heart surgery. And by the way, one of the things that was wrong with my heart was I had an aneurysm. Um, I had no clue about. And and after the surgery, I asked the surgeon, is, was there anything he saw during the surgery that surprised him? He said, your aneurysm was paper thin. He said, it could have blown at any minute and that would have been it. You would have had 10 minutes and you would have been dead. There's a, there's a, there's a uh, quote by Marcus Aurelius, one of the Stoics back a long time ago, who said, you could leave life right now. Let that determine what you do and say and think. So that it took me a couple months to recover from the surgery, and I, I did well. And I now it's been almost two years, and I really have no limits. I'm doing great. But you know, people ask me all the time, "Well, you know, that was like an epiphany time, right? I mean, you you could have died, and then you had the surgery, and now you now you're doing fine. Is there? Did you change your life? Are you doing anything different?" And I I I used to be kind of disappointed, kind of like, "Well, maybe I should have, you know, had this big epiphany thing, and maybe I should have." done something really big because of it. But the truth is, I love my wife. I love my marriage. I love my kids. I love what I do with my job. I love working with kids in all the ways that I work with them. I don't think I'm ever going to retire. I hope I don't ever have to retire. The campers always tell me that they're going to be pushing me in a wheelchair up the hills at camp when I'm 100 years of age. So there was no big shift in that in that sense. But a couple of things have been different since my surgery as I faced my mortality. One of them is I express gratitude more often. I think about gratitude every day. I also try and be more present. I work at that, being more present when I'm with people. I don't think I was ever like not that present, but I can get really focused on things and not be always aware of everything else around me. So I, I try on that, try and do that. Also, I was I was a guest on a podcast. It's called Live Inspired by John O'Leary, who's a friend. He and I, for years, have been on the board of Big Brothers Big Sisters here in St. Louis, and he's a great guy. He's got a podcast that goes out to hundreds of thousands of people. He's, a, he's an amazing speaker. 
Um, and so he interviewed me about what I do with girls and, you know, parenting and things. And when we were done, you know, we, we, he turned off the recorder and we were just chatting. And I told him that I, I want to, I wanted to sit down with him and pick his brain because his influence is so, so wide. I mean, he's influencing so many people with, with the work that he does. And I want him to give me some, some pointers or some suggestions about how I could get more people to hear this podcast, Raising Daughters, or to read my blogs and things like that. And one of the things that he told me was, was really valuable. He said, you know, he said, you're not really appreciating the kind of difference you're making. He said, maybe you're not reaching 500,000 people in your podcast. He said, but you're making an incredible, profound difference in the lives of kids one-on-one in your counseling practice, uh, in your camps, being a father figure, a mentor. And he said, you might want to just, you might want to think about that being just as valuable as reaching the hundreds of thousands of people with, with, with a book you write or your podcast. And that, that resonated with me. Um, I had spent a lot of my early life striving to be um, better, better than other people, to uh, compare myself to other people. I was the third boy in my family. I had two brothers who were like a year apart, all of us. And I was uh, the youngest uh, in my neighborhood. We'd, we'd run around these little packs of kids. I was always running around with the big kids. So I had this, this experience of trying to keep up with the big kids. And it made me very competitive and very focused and intense because if I was going to be playing basketball with them, I couldn't whine and complain. I had to just hustle and work my butt off to keep up, which helped me in life a lot. It helped me get through medical school and that was really hard for me, the science kind of parts. Um, but I also had, had realized uh, in my early mid-30s when I started doing some retreats and personal growth kind of work that it also was not serving me in some ways. And so I had worked a lot about getting out of the habit of trying to you know, get people's approval and be applauded and be better than other people and to focus instead on being of service. And that done, made a big difference in my life. But I think there's times when I probably fall back on that old habit. And I think John was kind of reminding me of that. I also wrote a book um, that came out about, oh, a year and a half ago. It came out after the surgery. I had been working out, but then I kind of reworked on it afterwards. I had time at home for a while. The book is called Letters from My Grandfather, Timeless Wisdom for a Life Worth Living. And I wrote it for young adults, teens like 16 through like 25, because I had wanted to pass on some of the experience and some of the wisdom that I had accumulated over the years to these young people. Because I've noticed how stressed out they're getting about their future, that they're trying to force their lives so hard into this little narrow box, which we've been, putting, which we've been conditioning them to believe in. And I wanted them to learn how to relax and trust that life was going to unfold for them. And again, stop trying to force it so much. It was causing so much anxiety and stress in them. I've talked before about my dot theory, you know, being open to experiences in your life that cross your path. And if you have the urge to do it, if your heart's saying, oh, that would be fun, I want to do that, then to do it. And to trust that over t- the months and years of your life that those dots start to connect to form the picture of who you are and what you're calling and what's your purpose to learn to follow your heart. So I think that, that I think having the surgery and facing my mortality, I think it just gave me a little bit more impetus to start passing on some of the things I've learned. I also have been encouraging parents for years to begin with the end in mind, that, that habit of Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. There's an activity that my wife and I do at talks many times, and I think I have talked about this before in a podcast or a blog about making a list of their end in mind. 
you know, to imagine your kids when they're 25, 30 years of age, and what kind of people do you want them to be? So I have people make a list, and I encourage couples when they go home from the talks to sit down uh, on a Saturday night and talk to the, each other about what do we want. Not like we're going to mold our kids into our, our, our little vision of them, but more like what's important to us? What kind of qualities are important to us? And then to use that end in mind to guide their parenting decisions about schools and activities and, and to be much more mindful about the pressures we can put on kids that, that aren't really in alignment with your end in mind. I guess after reading the, the um, Daily Stoic this week, I think it might be a really good idea to practice daily the memento mori, that ancient practice of reflecting on your mortality, and to use that to create perspective, maybe a sense of urgency, to not put off important things or our relationships or thank you notes or cleaning things up with people. And that, that memento mori could be a really good thing for that. Also, maybe to route your own eulogy like I had done 30 years ago. That might give your life more meaning and more purpose. Maybe help you prioritize your actions and, and what you do in your life. I heard a story one time about a college professor who gave a final exam at the end of his semester in which the questions were divided into three sections. And he gave them a choice to choose which category they wanted, section one, two, or three. Now, the first section was the hardest, and it was worth 50 points. The second sec section was a little bit less challenging and, and worth only 40 points. And the third section was the easiest and worth 30 points. And after the tests were all returned and graded, it became very clear to the students that uh, about whether their answers, but didn't matter whether their answers were right or wrong, whoever chose the first section got an A. If they chose the second section, they got a B. And the easy section, they got a C. Well, when some of the students went up to the professor objecting to his methods and kind of whining and complaining, he replied, I wasn't testing your knowledge. I was testing your aim. I wonder what you are aiming for. You personally, you and your spouse, you and your family. You might want to be very conscious and aware about what am I aiming for and make sure you're aiming for what is really important to you. I want you all to be maybe more conscious about how you spend your time. It's very easy to waste hours, you know, scrolling through walls and going on social media and watching YouTube videos, none of which is bad. But I read um, some data recently that said adults are spending about 10,000 hours a year on social media. Not teenagers, adults. Teens spend even more. About 10,000 hours a year. That's a huge chunk of time on something that's kind of unfruitful and not that important. You might want to think instead about spending more time reading reading books, uh, educating yourself, uh, spending more time out in nature, having deep conversations. At our, our summer camp about four or five years ago, um, the girls all said that they wanted closer friends. And one of the things that they thought would help that would be to have deeper conversations with people. All of them were yearning for having friends where they could have those kind of um, deeper conversations. And so they started um, comparing conversations as being either a McDonald's conversation, i.e. superficial, versus a Whole Foods conversation, which is like more deep and fruitful and meaningful. And I think the same thing can hold true for you. To make sure with your kids, with your spouse, and or with your friends, that you can spend some of that time in deep conversation. Maybe spend time learning an instrument this year. 
you know, do some journal writing, write a book, that book you've always thought you wanted to write. Spend some time doing some artwork. Spend some time sending thank you notes to people who have made a difference in your life. Spend more time uh, expressing gratitude in all kinds of different ways. Spend more time reading nonfiction books and doing some personal growth, going on retreats. When parents ask me sometimes, what's the very best thing that I ever did, my wife and I, when it came to uh, our parenting and learning about parenting, we always say, do personal growth. Clear out any baggage that might keep you from being the kind of parent that you want to be. The other thing I, I want you to think about as you think about your mortality is take more risks. I heard about a bird one time who lived in a rotten tree in this really nasty swamp. And she was resigned to living there. And she was eating like dirt-covered worms. And she was always covered in this kind of foul-smelling mud. Her wings had gotten weak from lack of use. But one day, a huge storm came through her area and destroyed her home, swallowed up, the, the mud swallowed up her, her um, tree, so she had to move. So she, to save herself, the bird started flapping her wings to take flight, and it took a lot of energy and a lot of work, and she had to face a lot of numbing pain, but she finally got up and could fly away. And she flew just a few hours away until she reached this really beautiful, fertile forest with, with beautiful, clear streams. And when she saw it, she wondered why she hadn't had the courage to fly away before. Don't be like the bird at the beginning. Don't be afraid to flap your wings and spread your wings and get out of your comfort zone. I saw a, a, a woman who was about 24 years of, of age in my counseling practice about a year ago. And she, she got out of college and she moved with several of her roommates to a big city and she got this apartment and she got this job that she kind of I thought was so great and she's so she's got it all together right she got what she wanted but a year later she was feeling kind of restless it just it wasn't as fulfilling as she thought it was going to be that's why she had called me for just some coaching and she had this some urges to spread her wings like that bird she said she felt like she was settling and even though she was in this big city she was living with her sister in an apartment that her, her parents had bought as kind of an investment. Um, and so she felt like she was still kind of under her parents' thumb, in a sense. And it was very safe to be with her friends from college. Um, but, her, but her favorite time that she had had that she, in her life was when she did a semester abroad in Spain. She loved Europe. She loved the traveling. She loved the adventure of it. And so I said, have you thought about doing something like that? And she said, well, actually, I've, I've always wanted to get a job maybe in, in uh, Madrid or maybe in London. So I said, what's holding you back? You're 24. You don't have a boyfriend. Um, you know, you, you know you, there's nothing to really tie you down. So I've been encouraging her to take a risk. So she's on, in the process of trying to create that for herself so she can uh, spend some time in Europe. It's never too late to shift. It's never too late to, to shift gears and maybe to do something different. I heard another good story years ago. It's one of my favorite stories. Alfred Nobel's story is one of my favorites as well. But this story um, was about a time in 1859 where a man was uh, looking over uh, on a hillside. He was looking over the plain of Solferino in France. And Napoleon and his army were preparing for battle with the Austrians. 
And this man, a healthy Swiss banker and a financier, he had a kind of a box seat view from, the, from his place on the hill. His name was Henri Dunant. And the trumpets blared and the muskets were sh- firing and the cans were booming. And the two armies crashed into each other and he sat there watching transfixed. And he heard people screaming as they were injured and dying. He watched people bleeding. He watched men taking their last breaths as he stared in horror at the scene below him. And he didn't really want to be there. He was only on a business trip to speak to Napoleon. But when he had arrived too late and found himself in a position to, to, to witness firsthand the atrocities of war. And what he saw on that hillside um, changed him. After that, that battle, he entered the small town and he saw the results of battle. All the buildings were filled with, with the injured, the dead. His heart was aching with, with sorrow and pity. He stayed in the village three more days to comfort the young soldiers. And he realized his life would never again be the same. War was horrible. War was barbarous. He became driven by this passion to abolish war. He also was inspired to create a worldwide organization to help people in times of suffering and need and chaos. So when Henri Dunant returned to Switzerland, he became a fanatic on the subject of peace and mercy. He traveled all over Europe preaching his message about about peace and about the atrocities of war to the detriment of his business. At the very first Geneva Convention, he carried on a one-man assault against war. As a result of his efforts, the convention passed the first international law against war, a movement that was to give birth to the League of Nations and the United Nations. His businesses suffered, and he was soon broke. He lost all of his worldly possessions, only to die as a virtual unknown in a poorhouse. But, despite that, we still remember Henri today because the, the Swiss humanitarian and activist was the very first recipient of the Nobel Peace Prize in 1901. Despite being penniless, he donated the prize he got from the Nobel, Nobel Peace Prize. He gave it to the worldwide movement he had founded. We remember him because he took his country's flag, a white cross on a red background, he reversed the colors, and he founded what was to become a worldwide movement called the Red Cross. It's never too late to switch gears. It's never too late for you to follow your heart, to start um, living your life with more urgency, to be more mindful of where you spend and how you spend your time. And also to prepare yourself for for just in case something happened. You know, uh, tying off loose ends, thanking people, expressing gratitude. And also, I want to, last and not least, not to fear death, not to fear fear your mortality. We're so so intense in this country about things like death. We don't talk about it. We don't talk about it with our kids. We don't, we just, we, we kind of avoid it because of our fear. I heard a story about a farmer who owned some land along a really rocky seacoast, which made it really hard to hire people because of all the terrible storms that came through and it wreaked havocs on the buildings and the crops. It was a tough place to work. But one day, this short middle-aged man came by and asked to be hired. So the farmer asked him why he should hire him. And the man said, you should hire me because I can sleep when the wind blows strong.
The farmer was puzzled, but he hired him anyway. And this man worked hard, dawn to dusk, until one night a storm approached with howling winds. The farmer jumped out of his bed to discover his hired hand sleeping away in his quarters. He shook him awake, demanding that he go outside and tie down everything so it wouldn't blow away. And the man told him that he had told the farmer when he hired him that he could sleep when the wind blows. Well, the farmer was, in, was enraged. He was, in, he was tempted to fire him on the spot, but instead he ran outside to prepare for the storm. But to his amazement, he discovered all the haystacks covered with tarps. The cows were in the barn, the chickens in the coop. Everything was, was closed off so nothing could blow away. It was then that he understood his hired hand's words. The hired hand's words were, I can, you should hire me because I can sleep when the wind blows. When you're prepared emotionally, spiritually, and physically, you have nothing to fear. So I guess for me, and perhaps for you listening into this podcast today, perhaps it might be important for all of us to develop a habit of practicing memento mori each and every day, to give our lives, again, that sense of urgency, to get us to be more focused on what's important to us, um, to, to, to maybe spend some time writing out your, your eulogy, your end in mind, your mission statement, all those things so that you are living the life that you want to live and will have no regrets whenever that day comes when you do pass. I always appreciate all of you who, who stop by here and listen to these podcasts every week or so. Um, always feel free to pass them on. Um, that book I mentioned earlier, uh, Letters to My Grandfather, Timeless Wisdom for a Life Worth Living, that book is uh, you can find on my website at drtimjordan.com. Check that out. That's a great book, I think, for young people. I, I think I've, I've, I put so much um, energy into um, the experiences I've had with kids and adults to pass on to them about how you can live the life that you were meant to live. Also look on that website uh, for dates from our summer camps that are coming up very soon. All the things that I do, I appreciate you when you look on those things and um, check them out. I'll be back here in a week with another podcast. And until then, uh, practice that ancient practice of reflection called Memento Mori. And hopefully that'll help uh, you guide your life to where you want to be. I'll see you back here in a couple.